You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Chris Markowski is a television commentator for Fox News, CNN, and CBS. He writes the Markowski Monthly, an investor advocate newsletter, and his website is watchdogonwallstreet.com. Thank you for joining me, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Chris, we have a current set of economic events that's being described as a new depression, 1930s style, a new extreme recession, 1980s style. How do we use past events to understand these current events? What applies and what doesn't? <laughs> well, as I said, you, have, you kind of have to study them all. And, you know, sometimes you take a little bit from one or the other and kind of pull it together. Um, you know, in my opinion in regards to this one, to make the comparison to the 19, late 1920s, 1930s, it's just, it's just I, I don't find it the slightest bit plausible. Um, we live in a completely different world where we have bank safety nets and, uh, you know, all sorts of, I mean, pension funds that didn't exist, all sorts of other activities out there that just makes the comparing the two very difficult. On the other hand, though, um, you saw a, a big increase uh, in consumer debt during the 1920s, which, which, which is something that we've also gone through here in this country. So there are some parallels as well. I think we get into dangerous, dangerous territory. The media loves to do that. It loves to say, oh, you know, Great Depression and throw words out there and uh, you know, unfortunately, they don't really have a great understanding of how the overall economy works. And, you know, I, I've actually written pieces on it that, you know, recessions are not necessarily bad things. Uh, they're things that are necessary. Uh, this is not going to be the last one that we enter into. Uh, it's a cleansing process. It's a lymphatic system, if you, you know, like, kind of like our human body has for our capitalist model. I have to ask, uh, you have a picture on your homepage of uh, the, President Obama with a hammer and sickle superimposed over him. I'm guessing that suggests you're not approving of the current policies. I am not thrilled uh, at all when I see an administration step in and start uh, you know, going in and getting involved with the interworkings of private companies. Um, for instance, uh, there's several different banking institutions that want to give back the TARP money, and they're being told no. Uh, I don't think it's a great idea that uh, Detroit be micromanaged by Washington, D.C. The entire group that is running this whole auto thing has got no experience in the automobile industry whatsoever. Um, I just don't think that is the right direction. Many of the things that, that the, the current administration has done, I think, are, are not so bad. But, you know, as far as getting involved and get, making the government bigger and grander and more involved with this stuff, a big mistake because government was a, a big factor and a large part of the problem which brought us into this whole credit crunch scenario. Uh, could you explain how, what you mean by that? Because it seemed that a lot of the uh, problems uh, resulted from government not exercising its regulatory authority with any uh, consistency. When I saw a breakdown in regulatory uh, concerns, you the SEC, and this is where the Bush administration does bear some blame. The Securities and Exchange Commission is a branch, basically being a part of the executive branch of government. And the, uh, allowing these big investment firms to uh, basically leverage themselves up 30 times 
is just nonsensical. Uh, however, we can also trace back to Depression-era legislation that was repealed under the Clinton administration, the Glass-Steagall Act, which allowed for all these big financial behemoths out there to exist, these financial supermarkets uh, to come apart. Uh, you know, that that's, that's a major part as well. And you can also go into the fact, too, and this is interesting. I was reading a story the other day out of a bank out of Massachusetts that uh, got a, a poor rating, a poor rating from the FDIC. Why did it get a poor rating from the FDIC? It's a small bank in Massachusetts. Didn't have any subprime loans on their books. Didn't have any problems with any failing loans. Profitable bank. They were, the FDIC gave them a poor rating because they didn't give enough loans to certain communities and certain demographic groups. You know, when the government gets involved and starts telling banks who they should be lending to, and we can also take a look at the fact, too, that the, you know, under Columbia, the uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, you know, Health um, Human Services, uh, the HUD department, also allowed a lot of these mortgage brokers uh, to, to come apart and help push these loans. There's a lot, a lot of blame to go around in regards to this. We had tons of regulation during the 1990s. It was just bad regulation. One thing that strikes me is that there seems to have been a real continuity, uh, and I'm not necessarily thrilled with it myself, between the previous administration and the current administration, especially with regards to the bailouts of the banking sector. Could you talk about that similarity? There really seems to be you know, not a lot of difference. George W. Bush was wounded politically for a long period of time, and I'm a big believer that we'd be out of this situation uh, if he actually had more political capital back in 2007, December 2007, the fall of 2007, because he really didn't have any. If we put some free market principles and some tax cuts and uh, some uh, capital gains tax cuts and did some of the things that you know, could have basically pushed us out of this thing, it would have gotten worse. Continuity is because, you know, we're taking a look at the fact that we had, they call it the, the systemic risk original sin, for lack of a better phrase, which was Bear Stearns. That's when, you know, the Fed and the Treasury felt that, you know what, we can't allow this company to go down, and they engineer a merger between them and J.P. Morgan. Now, what would have happened, let me go back, that's March a year ago, if the government did nothing? and allowed just Bear Stearns to collapse and let the chips fall where they may. A.D., Lehman Brothers and AIG and all these other institutions might have gotten their acts together, and we wouldn't have gotten into the humongous credit problem that we got into the fall this past year. Now, the word TARP, yeah, it's a four-letter word, and that's what everybody's using it as. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, the TARP worked. Uh, you know, they, the government had to step in. We had credit was frozen. I mean, you're at the point where no banks were trusting one another. We're not lending to one another. It worked. I mean, the credit markets have eased. They're not perfect. They're getting better slowly but surely. But, you know, I think that, you know, the government, in the end, is going to end up making a lot of money on the TARP. They're going to they own preferred stock and all these banks going forward. And I think the, the Obama administration kind of sees that, and they know what they have to do, and they're going to have to kind of play this thing through. I, I think that... Um, them not allowing banks to return the TARP funds, I do have a problem with that. But I also understand as well that, you know, uh, maybe there wasn't that option, uh, that convertible option or, you know, the return the money option when they, the banks originally signed on to the deal. But also don't forget that many banks were forced into taking the capital in the first place. How do tax cuts 
primarily and capital gains tax cuts, primarily uh, benefiting the wealthy, help the overall economy, it seems that we've essentially undergone a huge wealth transfer um, upwards in the past uh, 10 to 20 years. Well, in regards to the, the credit cards, we were talking about mortgage-backed securities, and we were talking about uh, all sorts of you know houses going into foreclosure. You want to give incentives for people to go out there and purchase these things. That's where all this whole problem stems from. And if you allow people to go out there and you basically would say long-term capital gains at 15%, give them a 15% bonus to go ahead and pick up some of this paper, this toxic paper, uh, and give them an incentive to go ahead and do so and take on uh, the type of risk that's involved. What difference does it make? Who does it? I mean, whether it be the government do it or, you know, taxpayers do it. I, I certainly think it's better for the private sector to be buying up these, these foreclosures than the government, don't you? Well, you know, I have to have to say I'm somewhat skeptical as to the direct effect of all these so-called foreclosures. I mean, nobody showed me an Excel spreadsheet that says this house at this address defaulted at this amount and now it's gone and who would, who invested in it. We've seen a lot of, um, I think, uh, blame casting around here, but not there's not a lot of a substance as far as I've seen thus far behind it. Can you show me some substance or say where we can find that kind of substance that says, yes, these people really did this. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm confused in regards to what, what, what your question is in regards to foreclosures. Well, um, we talk, we hear a lot about these toxic assets, and these are presumably the mortgages that were um, purchased by people who could not afford to pay them. And, and that's right. That's what the, that's the basis of all these so-called toxic assets. Is that correct? Not really. Um, kind of. Yes, but that's true. What happened is, is they pooled. Mortgages they they created Wall Street being the absolute you know joke that it's been for the past ten years stopped being Wall Street stopped it started becoming just this self-serving you know industry where all it didn't even serve its shareholders just served its executives um, they created these things these uh, these mortgage-backed securities collateralized debt obligations all these various different things that they put out there where they pooled thousands and thousands of mortgages together so. Some of the mortgages might be bad within these these assets, but some of them are also good. The fact is that they're toxic because nobody wants them right now, and nobody is buying them or getting involved with them. So basically, because of mark-to-market accounting rules, these assets have to be valued at zero. Now, banks have certain uh, requirements that they have to maintain certain you know capitalization requirements. They have all these... Uh, these t- assets on the books, and they have to write them down because no one wants to go ahead and purchase these things. Now there's been steps being made by the Treasury, and also they changed some accounting rules last week to get these assets moving forward. But there's no doubt about it that there's you know been a, you know waves of, of foreclosures around the country, and you know it, it, for the most part it's been speculators. Uh, you're talking about uh, you know I, I live in, in Southwest Florida. Everybody several years ago wanted to be Donald Trump and thought they could buy four or five pre-construction condos, and now they let all those things go. They're out there on the market. But the money was lent out. And, you know, this is where you're seeing all the banks have to write down all this money that they lent out. Now, um, let, let's uh, move on to talk about uh, the effect of these uh, of this on the, the larger part of the American population, uh, we've got a huge unemployment rate that seems to be rocketing uh, upward. Could you talk about how that ties into some of this bailout crisis? 
Well, you know, uh, we this we've got eight, unemployment at eight point five percent, and I think we're all crossing our fingers, thinking that hopefully it's it's we're getting near the end, and some of the numbers are kind of you know stating that. But like everybody else in, in our economy, when they get nervous, we became an economy quite, quite honestly where we've got not ahead of ourselves. Uh, the boom and bust mentality. Too many Americans went out and spent money that they couldn't afford. Too much consumer debt out there, and when they start basically pulling the reins in. Uh, the less money out there in the system. Businesses go ahead and do the same thing, and then they, you know, forces layoffs. They said this is not the, the first time that this has happened, and it most certainly will not be the last time uh, that this happens. Uh, we need to, once again, bring a little bit of innovation back into this country. You want to think back to the 1990s, which led us out of the recession that period of time. We had great innovation in the technology sector, bringing new products forward, and that the cycle will turn once again. Um, you know, businesses have pulled back and people have pulled back to such a degree that, you know, eventually boilers need to be replaced and new refrigerators need to be bought and all these things need to be, need to be done. And the, the tide will turn, the pendulum will swing in the opposite direction. And I think we're slowly but surely starting to see signs of that with some of the good economic, better economic numbers in regards to durable goods and consumer spending and the like. We have seen some some kind of positive stuff lately on, on in the numbers. So, do you think we are near the end of this recession? A lot of people are talking about this ending the third quarter this year, maybe early next year. Where do you see it ha- happening? I think that's. I mean, I think that's a fairly good estimate that would put this as you know one of the, the longest post World War uh, II recession we've had. I just never ever really subscribe to the you know the media's. You know, pushing the, the catastrophe, you know, the we're all going to die, you know, type of an aspect. I, uh, you know, things happen. You know, companies go out of business. Bankruptcies are not necessarily always bad. I mean, did we really need two big box electronic retailers out there? I know that's a, something to say if you're actually employed by Circuit City or, you know, some other company that's gone under. But some fundamental changes and shifts need to occur. And this is, this is nothing new. Uh, Schumpeter, uh, economist Joseph Schumpeter, has talked about creative destruction. This is the system we live in. If you want, you know, better technology, better cars, better drugs, all these things that are a part of modern life, well, you know, bankruptcies are a part of that. Uh, recessions are a part of that. Now, uh, do you see the recession as an opportunity for for uh, middle class people who are like somewhat struggling uh, to uh, invest and maybe perhaps make some money? Listen, one of the best things that, that Barack Obama did was really you know push more capital from the TALF into the Small Business Association loan program, and you know I, that's what I'm all about. I'm all about small businesses. Big business here in this country, quite honestly, goes hand in hand with with big government. They're easy to control. Small businesses is what makes this country work. And uh, recessions are always where the greatest technologies and the greatest innovations and things are, are born out of. And, uh, you know, there's a saying, they said, you know, in a recession, don't participate in it. Um, it's a great opportunity. Now, you're going to look back at 2007, 2008, 2009 as one of the best years ever for investing, not because of the returns during that period of time, but because the, the, the values you were able to purchase and the stocks and the investments you were able to put in your portfolio at that period of time. Um, you know, everything is, it really is perspective. I mean, there's a lot of people making a lot of money right now trying to, you know, with the, the whole, you know, torches and pitchforks and dig a hole in your backyard and, you know, stuff it with gold bars and tuna fish mentality. But <laughs> you really, you, you kind of, you know, you never really want to bet on the end of the world. It only happens one time. Uh, I like that idea. 
let's say you are somebody who spent 20 years in the corporate sector, has been laid off, um, your, your prospects are not great. You're essentially have gone from working at, you know, a uh, a 20-mile commute um, where you're making, say, 60, 70, 80K. Now you're working at Best Buy at, at you know, minimum wage. What do you tell those people? How, how, what's their future? There, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing I can really, I mean, tell those people. that They're going to have to find, in some senses, they're going to have to find their own career. Um, they're going to have to find their, their new way. And I know, it's, you know no one likes getting laid off and you have a job for 20 years. But my God, I mean, if there was ever a great, a better place to get laid off, it's here in the United States. I mean, we've got a system of universities. You can get degrees online. You can reinvent yourself here in a very short period of time in, in this country where you can't do that around the world. Try doing that in Europe. There's no community college system there. No, you can go get a, 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 you know, another degree or, or start a new career or enter a new field. There's always the possibility of doing things like that here in this country and creating your own job. You know, it, you know there's no, been nothing in the United States Constitution that says you're going to get a job when you're 18 years old and have it until you retire. And, you know, this is why it's important for Americans, no matter how safe that they feel in their job, to constantly stay abreast and constantly educate themselves and keep themselves, uh, you know, in tune with the evolving technologies and what's going on out there. Because, you know what, you never know. I mean, I wrote a column several years ago called Even Blue Chips Die. And I was talking about, uh, was talking about the Dutch East India Company, which was the bluest of blue chips for 200 years, paid an 18% dividend, but it's no longer. Um, this is what happens. Um, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that during uh, the, the early Bush years, right, in fact, in, in the aftermath of the uh, 9-11 event, uh, the economy actually improved in a way that seemed kind of um, unsustainable. We created a sort of a, a false kind of war bubble based on an un, you know a war that was um, not included in the federal budget yeah. and, and um, encouraging consumers to spend money that they really didn't have could you talk well, about that about the aftermath you, of that I you know I don't I don't know uh, you know who I don't remember anybody coming out and telling people to spend money that they didn't have. Uh, the president came out there to go ahead and live their lives like they should. I think what encouraged people to spend money that they didn't have, you know, you can blame that on, you can blame, blame honestly, and I don't want to, you can blame that on your local real estate agent. You can blame that on the phone calls. I'm sure you got them as too. You know, take money out of your house, go on vacation to Disney, do this, do that. People making, you know, some irresponsible choices with their money. Um, no one told you to go out and take out a home equity loan and go ahead and, you know, buy three flat screen television sets. Um, you know, you, people who live on an even keel, this is one of the things I try to teach in regards to financial planning, not subscribe to the boom-bust mentality. You know, live on an even keel. I mean, dollar-cost average, invest every month no matter what the markets are doing. Um, you set up that type of a lifestyle, enjoy your life, go out to dinner, do the things that you like to do, but do it all in moderation. When you've got a society that goes this bonkers because you saw real estate values skyrocket in such a short period of time, I mean, literally, and where I lived, they were up 100% over the course of the year. And, you know, people went nuts with it. Now, the difference between that bust and the dot-com bust was the fact that there was a lot of consumer, consumer debt involved. Whereas, yeah, a lot of people borrowed money to buy stocks in, in the dot-com collapse. 
it wasn't so, you know, I guess entrenched. But now we're seeing people pay down their credit cards, save more money. The savings rate is increasing exponentially here in the United States, which is fantastic. It's a correction. Well, I agree. What uh, sector, technology sectors, do you think offer the best opportunity for uh, both investors and for the American economy? Wow. I mean, they're, they're, they move so fast and furious with the things that they're able to do. It's, it, it truly is amazing. And this is why, you know, it's, I find it so amazing that people can get so down and out about a, a prospect as a country when, you know, you've seen the, the falls of, of prior civilizations, whether it be, you know, the burning of the Library of Alexandria, or the Middle Ages, and the destruction of all this knowledge and world knowledge. I mean, it, soon you're going to be able to have a computer at your desk that contain all knowledge of the world. You'll have a disk drive big enough to handle that. I mean, think about the potential and the things that we have going forward. You know, we as a country, we are demographically better than Europe as far as the birth rate that we have here, and most certainly as far as Japan, uh, which means I still think that we're going to be able to innovate and bring new things forward. I think healthcare is going to continue to be in technology in regards to healthcare and uh, making it more efficient and, and revamping the system. I think that that is going to be a uh, definite wave of the future because the reality is is that we're living longer and healthier lives. Um, but also the fact is that, you know, like I said, different places around the globe are going to be stagnating as far as their growth, Japan and Europe, because they don't replace themselves with more kids. And they have, you know, social structures that are set in place that they're just, it's going to be unaffordable to do that. Um, the United States is well positioned to take a leadership role uh, going forward. And uh, I think, I think very, you know, it's technology is so amazing because you, you never know what they're going to come up with next. You've got to have to go back and watch some of the cartoons that we used to watch as kids, like the Jetsons, to see some of the stuff that they're going to come up with because someone will think of it. Um, what, happens to, what happens to hold on and what happens to be the, the, you know, the, the ones that survive in the end, that's, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think, you know, think about a company like Google. Uh, it's a search engine. It's a search engine. I think that they're finally realizing that, that they're, you know, okay, we're a search engine. Maybe somebody will come up with a better one, and then we're done. And they're starting to invest more money into venture capital. And this is what is going to get the economy going. It's, you know, I see now I'm starting to see more and more deals come across my desk. People want to raise capital. All these great, you know, things coming out there. That's what leads us out of this thing. When Wall Street, once again, does its role that it's supposed to do, which is fund America and fund businesses and help small business owners and get capital to go ahead and see their dreams. We got away from that for the past 10 years. Wall Street, like I said, did nothing except become grand uh, illusionists, financial engineers, which is basically nothing, you know, trying to tell us where there's, there's no risk when there's plenty of it. They didn't create, they didn't build anything. I mean, you can't name five IPOs over the past 10 years. It's a joke. But now we've got to get back to that. I've been speaking with Chris Markowski. His website is watchdogonwallstreet.com. Thank you for joining me, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.